If you brought your Bibles, you can open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is a chapter, man, I feel like I read 50 times this week getting ready for today's teaching. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is kind of the culmination of, of Paul's letter to Corinth. There's, he started a church in a super diverse, multi-ethnic, sin city of Corinth. They've got all kinds of issues and questions. They're trying to figure out what it means to be a church and what it's like. And they're having correspondence with Paul back and forth. And so he sends them this letter and he's addressing all kinds of issues that the church at Corinth is having. But chapter 15 is like the big stamp on the end of his letter. It's the culmination of everything. He, he's going to attempt to answer every question and every concern the church at Corinth has in one chapter. And like a true amazing preacher, he goes on and on and on. If you look, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 has 58 verses. 58 trying to wrap it up, trying to sum it up, trying to, to pull and tie it all together. And uh, the truth is, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is, is one of the greatest, maybe one of the greatest chapters in the New Testament, but it, but it is also one of the most difficult because it deals with the issue of life and death, specifically a question maybe that has some interest to you. What happens when you die? Curious? What happens when you, we die? Would you like to know? Paul's going to spend a whole chapter looking at the issue of life and death. It made me think of... Um, my time when I was a youth minister, I was a youth minister for about 10 years, and some of you know me, I'm still probably 51% youth minister, uh, a little bit uh, out of control. Uh, but when I was a youth minister, uh, my summers were spent driving this vehicle, I think I have a picture of it, right there. Maybe uh, your youth ministry days, you remember these, a white 15-passenger Ford van. Um, it smelled like teenagers, wet, stinky, teenagers, uh, and I think honestly, we just kept spray deodorant like in the glove box, just as like an all the time, like Febreze couldn't touch what happened. But all summer long, I would take teenagers on trips to, to water parks and retreats and mission trips, and we would always take this 15-passenger van, and uh, uh, as a thank you to me, we'd come back, I'd, ha I'd have these teenagers with me for a weekend or a week at a time, and as a thank you to me, uh, there would always be some parents that were late to pick up their kids when we got home. It's always really appreciated. Um, so here I am, me and uh, a couple of teenagers. We're hanging around the 15-passenger van. We're waiting for their parents to come. They've called and texted. They're on their way, but they're still not there yet. And my job's really not over because the church I worked at, we had a bunch of 15-passenger vans. And before I could go home, we had to take the vans from where we dropped them off at the student house all the way across the big, massive parking lot to the place where we left the vans, the place where we parked. So for me, here's a problem. I've got to get these vans from point A to point B. 
I can't do it all by myself. I have teenagers with me. Why not let teenagers drive 15 passenger vans? I didn't say I was a good youth minister. So I started this thing. This is, this is a true story. This really happened. I would say, hey, your parents don't love you. They didn't come pick you up. Would you like to help me park the vans? You know what they said? Yes. They love the idea of parking vans, right? Like this was very exciting. No one ever gave them a key to a 15 passenger van. And uh, I remember one teenager specifically, my wife knows who I'm talking about, Lindsay Meyer. When she was in the sixth grade, her parents, her mom worked at the church and she was always late picking her up. Um, but I said, Lindsay, it's just, you know, we're waiting for your, your parents are on the way. Do you want to help me park the vans? And she said, yes, of course. I'll help you take the vans across the parking lot and we can park it together. And I said, cool, awesome, and tossed her the keys. She's in sixth grade. She climbs in the driver's seat. I climb in the passenger seat, which you know those vans, there's like a big space. It's not like I was right next to her. And, and I, I would always say, you know what you're doing. And without fail, every single teenager I ever asked, whether they had knew how to drive or not, they all said the exact same thing. They said, I got this. Why don't you say it? Say, I got this. That's right. Toss them the keys. The sixth grader climbs in the driver's seat of the 15-passenger van. And I'd say, Lindsay, you know what you're doing? And she would say, I got this. Inevitably, her next question was, which one's the gas and which one's the brake? <laughs> At least she knew those two things existed. Uh, we actually made it. It was a, kind of a long winding. We went over some curbs. I think Lindsay actually was one of the ones we stopped halfway. Like, I couldn't, my heart couldn't take it anymore. Like, even in an empty parking lot, it was too much. She was so confident that she could do it. She was so confident. They were, all were. They were so confident that they could handle it, that they could steer their own future. In the Bible, it begins with a story of a, of a couple, Adam and Eve, in a garden together. Things are pretty good. In fact, things are amazing. It's the fullness of shalom. They, they live a whole, full life. There's, there's fruit and trees and animals, and they're walking with God every step of the way, like perfect union with him. And the great part about this story, when it begins in the garden, it lasts forever. Because they get to eat of the tree of life in the garden, right? It goes on and on and on. And there's no end in sight to this vision of perfection. Until an antagonist comes in and teases our couple, offering, tempting them with something more says, why don't you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It says, if you look carefully, the tempter says that you'll be like God. You know what Adam and Eve say? 
I got this. When they take of the fruit, what happens? In an attempt to steer their own life, in an attempt to be like God, they sin against God. They create distance between themselves and God. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says that sin is the sting of death. This thing that was going on and on and had no end in sight now becomes temporary as Adam and Eve are moved out of the garden. Nothing will put you in the ground faster. Nothing steal your life like sin. You see that sin separates us from God, the source of all life. It kicks us out of the presence and the goodness of God. Even the name Adam kind of embodies this. Maybe you've heard me complain about my name sometimes. I just wonder that my parents didn't really put a whole lot of thought into this. Uh, the, the name Adam literally means dirt. <laughs> yep. From the dirt form, from the earth. Your name is mud, my name's dirt. Um, Adam is also the one who uh, uh, broke relationship with God and brought sin and death into the world. I got that going for me. Pretty special. Adam, Adam means temporary, right? It means it, it's coming for all of us. We came from dirt. We're going to return to dirt. And the reality is that's because of sin and death. That's our cycle, right? Like that's, it's, it's, is it not coming for somebody in here? It's coming for, for all of us. It's an unending cycle of we born and then we die. And it's useless to, to try to fight it or resist it. I mean, sometimes we try to prolong it. And this is the way it goes, right? If you look in the story of the Bible, this is the way it goes for thousands of years. Life and death. Life and death. Until. Until the man of Jesus appears. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, here's, here's how he begins he says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. He says that Christ died for our sins, just as scripture said, and he was buried. And to this point in the story, we're all on the same page, right? Life and death, we see it happen again and again and again and again. And there's no surprise until Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised from dead raised from the dead on the third day. That word um, resurrection in the Greek, it means to up again to stand. It means to stand up again. And with the person of Jesus Christ, that cycle of life and death is broken. And Paul goes on to say in the next few verses of chapter 15, verse 5 through 17, he says, lots of people are witnesses to this. 
says, Peter saw the resurrected Jesus, and then the 12 saw the resurrected Jesus, and, and Mary, and, and he said there were even 500 people that saw the resurrected Jesus, that saw this cycle break. James saw it, and, and he said, I saw it too. And he said that even though Corinth, uh, when Paul's writing this letter, it's only about 20 years after the resurrection, Paul says, these people are still alive today. Go ask them yourself. There is one who has broken the cycle. And so he says in verse 12, he says, with all of these witnesses, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? This is a big issue. Uh, I was doing some discipleship time with a family one time and uh, man, they were so excited about the, the church and what God was doing in their life. And uh, the, the wife was right on board and we were reading scripture together and the kids were coming along. We were reading scripture together and, and the dad, we were reading scripture with him too. And we kind of got to the end, like this penultimate moment of our time together. And the dad just stopped it all and said, look, I believe everything the Bible says. He says, I believe everything the Bible says. I believe it's, it's the right way to live. I, I believe that the Bible offers us the best life imaginable. I just don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul says, this is really important. He goes on in the, this first half of chapter 15, he says, if there's no resurrection, he said, just pack up your bags because all of this, and he means all of this, even here today. He said, if there's no resurrection, all of this is useless. All of this is void or null or hollow or empty. He said, all, the Apollos, uh, all of the apostles' teachings are, are empty. He says, me risking my own life with the people in Ephesus is empty. He says, the church and obedience and worship, if there's no resurrection, it's all useless. He says, even faith is useless if there's no resurrection. If there's no resurrection, then the cycle of life and death stays the same. If there's no resurrection, then nothing has changed and we're still guilty of our sin. He says, if there's no resurrection, then Christians are to be pitied more than anyone because they gave their life to something that's worthless. He says in verse 32, he says, if there's no resurrection from the dead, he says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But... In verse 20, he says this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He says he is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. 
that, that harvest language would immediately resonated with all of the Jewish ears that were listening because it was Passover time and Passover was a harvest festival, but you couldn't harvest your crops until somebody went and took the very first portion of the crop and, and processed it and brought it to the temple as an offering. You couldn't, you couldn't bring in the rest of the food. You couldn't bring in the rest of the harvest. The feast couldn't begin until the first portion was given to God. And that's what he says is happening when Christ was resurrected, when he stood up again. It was the first of a great harvest of all who died. It proved that Jesus is who he says he was and that he did what only he could do. I told you about the first Adam, the dirt guy. Paul in chapter 15, he says, sure, there's the first Adam who's temporary, right? Destined for decay and death, but he calls Jesus the second Adam. The first Adam is filled with dirt and dust and his flesh, but the second Adam, Adam 2.0, is a better version He's built of different stuff. He's made not of flesh, but of spirit. The Corinthian church is leaning in now. They're listening. They're paying attention. Okay, so if there is a resurrection from the dead, they ask what is an incredibly obvious question in verse 35. Here's what it says. How? How? Right, these are, these are good questions, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, so if there is a resurrection, like how will the dead be raised? And then the second question is just as, just as good. It's kind of elementary, but I think it's a perfect question. All right, if the dead will be raised, what kind of bodies will they have? That sounds like something that would come out of children's ministry, doesn't it, right? Well, you're gonna look like giant alien slugs. That's what it'll look like. Like, no, like what do you, okay, if this happens, like, what, how, and, and what is this going to be like? And what, is it, what does it look like? And maybe you've heard before that somebody said, there's no such thing as a stupid question. Paul says, this is a foolish question. And the reality is that like, um, what Paul says from this point forward, he really has no idea what he's talking about, right? Because how, how do we know what it will be like? But still, he takes a stab at it. And he talks about this idea of transformation. So maybe he's, he's standing outside. Maybe he's riding this in a garden. And he looks around and he says, well, it's kind of like when you put a seed into the ground. When you're buried, you, re you return to the ground like a seed. And it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And he's talking about this idea of transformation. Our earthly bodies, the flesh will be planted in the ground like seeds. And he, he goes back and forth. He says, he says they'll, be, they'll be buried and planted, but they'll be raised to live forever. There'll be something different in the same way that, that a flower doesn't resemble the seed. 
He says, they'll be buried in brokenness, but they'll be raised in glory. They'll be buried in weakness, but they'll be raised in strength. They'll be buried in their natural form, but they'll be raised in the spirit. He says, if this is not it, if there is more to this, if this is not all she wrote, if there is hope for life after death, then the next question is, how do we get there? How do we pass from, from flesh to spirit? How do we move from, like, if this, this form can't even inherit something eternal, how do we move from the temporary to the ter- eternal? How do we pass from one life to the next? Show that image, Paul. I mean, show that image, TJ. <laughs> In his book, um, The Ragamuffin Gospel, Brennan Manning, who was a Franciscan monk for at least for a time, he wrote this. He says, one night I went to the chapel to pray. The world was asleep, but my heart was awake to the Lord, and I stood at the crucifix for a long time. Then in faith, I heard Jesus Christ say, For love of you, I left my father's side, and I came to you, who ran from me, who fled from me, who did not want to hear my name. For love of you, I was covered with spit and punched and beaten and fixed to the wood of the cross. He says, I figuratively saw blood streaming from every wound and pore in Christ's body, and I heard the cry of his blood this isn't a joke. It's, it's not a laughing matter to me that I loved you. He says, the longer I looked, the more I realized that no man has ever loved me and no woman could ever love me as he does. He goes on to say that once you come to experience the love of Jesus Christ Nothing else in the world will seem beautiful or desirable. Paul says this is what's most important. In fact, if you, if you have everything else, but you don't have this, really you have nothing. In just a moment, we're going to dismiss to a time of communion. And uh, if you're a guest with us, we do this a little bit different. We've got tables set up around the room in three locations. And in a few moments, I'll say a prayer and I'll dismiss you to those tables. On the table, you'll find the element of the elements of Christ's body and blood broken, poured out for you. Before we get there, let me remind you again of what is most important the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Christ died for your sins. Your sins and mine. He was buried on the third day and on the third day was resurrected. It was proof that he is the son of God. 
He sacrificed himself to defeat the cycle of sin and death and draw us again to God and give us life. Maybe my favorite passage out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is verse 22. He says, just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. And if there's one message of Paul's letter to Corinth, it is you belong to Christ. So let me show you this image again. I think I have it. When Peter first preached these words, the crowd that heard them were cut to the heart. How about you? Are you still trying to steer your own life? You got this? This morning, Jesus is calling out to you. He's inviting you to repent, to give up trying to steer your own way, to try to do it all yourself. He's inviting you to turn to God, to be baptized and receive the gift of life. In just a moment, if God's put it on your heart to respond, uh, after I pray, I'll just kind of move to the back and there's ways we can pray for you or serve you. Um, Maybe your heart is telling you something this morning. Maybe you're ready to give yourself completely to Jesus Christ. Maybe you have a desire to be baptized. Man, we want to we uh, respond to the, what the Spirit is doing in you. So I'll just move to the back while everyone else enjoys a time of communion. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for your word, for its power, for its depth and richness, for its clarity. God, may we remember what is most important, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, that this really happened and that, that it was an act of love on your part to redeem and restore and draw us again into your presence. And Father, it's a gift for everyone. None are excluded. We have only but to accept it. And so, Father God, maybe there are those here today trying to steer their own life, trying to do it their own way, trying to find some life in this place. God, may you move them to a place of surrender and repentance. Maybe some are are waiting, lingering to give themselves completely to you in baptism. God, may you move powerfully. May your spirit move in them. May they be drawn to you. May they find that they belong to you and that everyone who belongs to you will be given new life. We love you, Father. Help us to receive this message that's most important. And in your son Jesus' name, everyone together says, amen. amen. I invite you.